Hello and welcome to the Serve Strong, Finish Strong podcast on the Mission Matters Podcast Network. Listen, if you're the kind of person who's always wanted to have your own podcast, but feared all the work in editing and syndicating and keeping up, I've got a great option for you to get your message out with all that extra work. Click on missionmattershost.com for more information and tell them you heard this on Serve Strong, Finish Strong. And now, welcome to the conversation designed specifically for you in your 40s and 50s. If you crave a future with meaning and significance, this is the place for you. I'm Scott, and I'm your host, and I'm glad you're aboard as we embark on another episode together. He was born July 3rd, 1900, in Woolwich, England. He came to the United States in 1924, where he worked briefly at United Engineering Company and Republic Steel Company of Youngstown, Ohio, prior to taking the general manager post at E.W. Bliss Company in Salem, Ohio. He remained here until 1946, when he organized a company located in East Palestine, Ohio. Who is this and why is it important to you and your business? That's what we're going to get into in this episode. Welcome to the Serve Strong, Finish Strong podcast. This is the show for business owners in their 40s and 50s who deeply desire a business that serves the market strong and who deeply desire to finish strong personally. I'm your host, Scott Kokenauer, and I'm so honored that you're listening today. So I introduced you to my grandfather. W.L. Nash, Leonard Nash, born July 3rd, 1900 in England, came to the United States in 1924, worked in a couple of engineering and steel companies, and then E.W. Bliss Company, a manufacturing firm, until 1946, when he organized a company called L.W. Nash Company of East Palestine, Ohio. So L.W. Nash Company designed and built rolling mill machinery. If you had a block of steel or aluminum or some metal and you needed a product out of that metal, they would design the process and build the pieces and parts, including the conveyor belts and etc. So basically, on the left side, you have a block of raw steel material. On the right side, you have your desired product. L.W. Nash Company filled the gap between that block of steel and that product. They designed and built the machine that would manipulate that raw material into a product at the other end. It was a 164,000 square foot structure on 193 North James Street in a small town called East Palestine, Ohio. Now at the time of this recording, that town may sound familiar to you because it should. It's The recent news development surrounding this town had to do with a large train derailment that caught the nation's news cycle because of some materials that were hazardous to the health of the community. That's East Palestine, Ohio. We're talking about the same town. L.W. Nash, my grandfather, my dad's dad, began in 1949 this company and My dad started working for the company in 1959, the year he married my mom, Patricia Nash. Now, one of the jobs that dad shared with me that he oversaw 
was the production of a process that took a roll of thick aluminum, 70,000 pound roll of aluminum and pressed it down to thin sheets that we know today as aluminum foil. If you can imagine in the olden days, the washing machines where you would wash on one of those ribbed, um, I'm not sure what they're called, but they're, and you would scrape your clothes against the ribbed pan. And then you would take this piece of clothing and put it between two rolls and crank that piece of clothing through these two rolls to dry the piece of clothing. That's similar to what this machine would do only on a much larger scale. I believe they were five, six, seven, or eight feet wide. And the process that had to be designed would take this raw uh, coil of inch, inch and a half thick aluminum foil, and it would pick it up and position it in front of these two rolls that would then squeeze this raw aluminum material into a very thin and long sheet, where at the other end of the process, there was a coil that rolled up the thin sheets of aluminum. Now, this process was related to one of Nash, L.W. Nash's largest customers, a little outfit from Pittsburgh, PA, known as Alcoa. Alcoa, originally known as the Aluminum Company of America, was founded in 1888 by Charles Martin Hall and Alfred E. Hunt in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hall, a few years prior in 1886, had developed an affordable process to produce aluminum by electrolyzing molten aluminum oxide dissolved in cryolite. This process, called the hall Herolt process, simultaneously discovered by Paul Herolt in France, revolutionized the aluminum industry. Now, prior to this innovation, aluminum was a rare and precious metal, but the process made it more accessible and affordable, paving the way for aluminum to become a widespread industrial and consumer material. You probably have a roll of, of aluminum in one of your drawers in your kitchen as we speak. So Alcoa became the first company in the world to commercially produce aluminum, and with the demand for aluminum growing in various sectors such as aerospace, automotive, and, and construction, the company expanded rapidly. Over the years, Alcoa diversified its operations and ventured into bauxite mining, alumina refining, and aluminum smelting. Now, one of, as I mentioned, one of Nash's largest customers was Alcoa. And because of what L.W. Nash was doing for Alcoa, Nash became very knowledgeable of Alcoa's operations. You see, what happened was one of Alcoa's largest vendors was the L.W. Nash Company in East Palestine, Ohio. And Nash, the people at Nash, knew more about Alcoa's process with aluminum than the engineers at Alcoa themselves. In fact, they asked Nash to train them. So here's where it gets interesting. And here's what it means to you as a business that you're running as you, as you listen to this episode. Both companies were simultaneously dealing with the Switzerland structure. 
Now, let me explain the Switzerland structure to you. As you recall from a couple of episodes ago where we talked about the eight drivers of business value along with the six hallmarks of a fantastic fourth quarter, one of the eight drivers of value is what is called the Switzerland structure. It's one of the principles in John Warillo's value builder system, and it's named after Switzerland due to the country's longstanding commitment to neutrality and particularly in global conflicts. In the context of building a valuable business, the Switzerland structure means that a company should not be overly dependent on any one single customer, supplier, or employee. Here's a concise breakdown. Let's talk about customer dependence. If a significant portion of your revenue is coming from a single customer, it's going to make your business vulnerable. That customer essentially has a lot of control. And if they decide to leave, your business could be in real trouble. Ideally, no one customer should represent a huge chunk of your revenue. Secondly, there's employee dependence. If your business heavily relies on one single employee or a group of employees, it could be at risk if they all decide to leave. And it's crucial to have documented processes, cross-training, and diversified team so the business can run without being overly dependent on a few individuals. And then the third part of the Switzerland structure is supplier dependence. Being overly dependent on a single supplier can be a risk. If that supplier increases prices or faces a disruption or even goes out of business, it could seriously impact your company. So it's wise to have multiple suppliers or alternatives set in place. So in essence, the Switzerland structure principle emphasizes the importance of neutrality and diversification in your business relationships to maximize its value and resilience. We, we understand this when we talk about retirement plans. You know, your wealth manager, when you sit down to look at your stock portfolio, one of the key words you're always going to hear is diversify. Why do we diversify in our stocks? and our bonds. Well, it's because you don't want all your money wrapped up in one industry or one sector because if that sector suffers, you have a much greater chance of suffering along with it. But when you diversify over multiple areas, if that sector goes under, you're covered by all of the other areas as well. It's the same thing with the Switzerland structure and your business. Now, let's go back to LW Nash and Alcoa for a moment. LW Nash's largest customer was Alcoa. Alcoa was growing at a rapid rate, and they were being known for their aluminum and the products that their aluminum could create. And then on the other side, Alcoa's largest supplier or vendor in the supply chain was LW Nash. So much so, not only volume, but in know-how and inside information about how things went together to create aluminum foil. This became a threat on both sides. Based on the Switzerland structure, LW Nash was vulnerable if Alcoa was to go under. Now, let me pause for a moment and say that if you do have one large company as a part of your overall business, and it is a large percentage annual revenue, and that company is growing rapidly, 
I can understand the temptation not to pursue other work and to just satisfy this customer so that they are pleased. I think it's wise, though, to resist that temptation, regardless of how well your largest customer is doing. In this case, Alcoa was just growing like crazy because aluminum was growing in all these sectors, aerospace, automotive, construction. And so the company was expanding rapidly, therefore needing L.W. Nash all the more. So L.W. Nash was banking on a company that in all likelihood was not going to go under. However, what if Alcoa got bought by an even larger company? Or what if there's something equal to the pandemic that may affect aluminum? What if the mining process of alumina or what other materials dried up? Even though the demand for what Alcoa was producing was greatly high, there could be other threats. And so I'm encouraging you to look at your business, look at your customer base, take a look at your largest customer, not just look at how well they're doing and what their forecast is for business, but take a look at the surrounding context of that particular vendor and what are their vulnerabilities. And I'll bet that you will come back to the conclusion that it's better to diversify among multiple customers than to be reliant on one large customer. So what did Alcoa do? Here is LW Nash, part of their supply chain, knows so much about Alcoa. Well, I'll tell you what happened. They approached LW, my grandfather, and said, we'd like to buy your company. So I can just imagine what that would have been like for Grandpa to be approached by Alcoa, this large steel manufacturing company and aluminum supplier to the world in this big town called Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which, by the way, was a mere 60 minutes away. They became, that would have been very exciting to be approached in that way. And maybe you've been approached by a large conglomerate who wants to buy your business. The dollar signs in your eyes would be the greatest temptation. And it was LW that saw this opportunity as the cash that they expected or needed in order to expand their business. So they came into this with eyes wide open and excited. Alcoa, as it turns out, wasn't interested in continuing to work with L.W. Nash. No, they took care of their Switzerland process by buying, essentially buying the threat. They bought L.W. Nash as their insurance policy to prevent what L.W. Nash may do to them because they knew so much about Alcoa's operations. So, whether or not you think this was an upright kind of thing to do, that's for another podcast show. What I would like you to focus on here is two companies that each were dealing with their own Switzerland structure. And 
we're going to talk about your Switzerland structure. Are you dependent on any one customer? Are you dependent on any one employee? Or are you dependent on any one supplier in your business, in your supply chain? If a company doesn't adequately address a poor Switzerland structure, there are several negative consequences that can arise. I'm going to share a few of them with you. First of all, if you have a poor Switzerland structure, your vulnerability increases. Heavy dependence on a single customer, employee, or supplier exposes you to considerable risk, as we've been talking about. Any change in that relationship, such as the loss of a major client or key employee, can lead to significant business disruption. It can also reduce your value. If you were to ever sell, a potential buyer or investors often view customer, employee, and supplier dependence as a significant risk. And because of that, this decreases the perceived value of your company and it affects its sale price or the willingness to investors of investors to even invest in your company. So before you go out looking for investors, have a look at your Switzerland structure. A poor Switzerland structure also makes your financials unstable or unstable. So over-reliance on one revenue stream from a customer can lead to your financial instability if that stream is disrupted. I know this all sounds like, yeah, of course, this is true. I can understand that. But there is a real vulnerability when you own a company and things are going well that you tend to turn a blind eye to that one customer. You understand that the risk is there, and yet it's going so well. I'm here to encourage you to take another look at that vulnerability. You're also going to wrestle with limited growth potential. When you have a lack of diversification, it often restricts your growth opportunities. As if a company is only serving one significant client, for example, it may miss opportunities in other market segments or regions because you're so busy working on that one customer that you don't have time to step back and say, how can we expand and develop in other areas? Your operations will, will can be disrupted. That's another risk. Over-reliance on a single supplier can lead to operational hiccups if there are supply chain disruptions. And don't we all know about supply chain disruptions because of the pandemic? But similarly, if key processes or knowledge are concentrated with a few employees and they choose to strike or go on an extended leave or just leave altogether, imagine what that could do to your operations. Your negotiation power is decreased because if you're too dependent on a single client or supplier, you have a weaker bargaining power and potentially lead to unfavorable terms in contracts or pricing with those clients or suppliers. And there's one more, and that is a reputation risk. If a key employee with a strong personal brand leaves, or if a major customer publicly switches to a competitor, you can imagine the harm that may do to your company's reputation. 
Okay. So we talked about the risks. We talked about a low Switzerland structure score and uh, the things that, and, and what Switzerland structure is all about. I mean, we're talking about customers, vendors, and employees. So what do you do to reduce these risks? Well, I've got, oh, let's see. I've got about five things to consider doing. Number one, pretty obvious, diversify your client base. Actively seek out new clients in different sectors or regions because diversifying the types of customers you serve, you're less vulnerable to changes in any one particular industry or market. Don't just think of, let's get five more clients in the same market. Consider other industries or other markets as well because one vertical market may go down while others don't. That's diversification. Number two, expand your product or service. Consider introducing new products or services that cater to a broader audience or different market segments. This helps in attracting a, a varied clientele, reducing dependence on a single customer. And number three, implement a referral program. So take a look at your existing customers and encourage them to refer new clients to you. This not only brings new customers, but also strengthens the relationship with the existing ones. And that ensures that they're less likely to switch to competitors. And by the way, cozy up beside every one of your clients and deepen the relationship. Business is built on relationship, not transaction. It's transactions that happen in the context of relationship. So a referral program is one of many things that you can do to build more of a deeper relationship. Number four, Strengthen market and sales efforts. So increase your marketing and sales initiatives. Uh, this can involve exploring new advertising platforms or attending trade shows or utilizing content marketing to attract a broader audience. And finally, number five, what you can do is establish retainer or subscription models. Instead of having one-off sales, why don't you consider setting up a subscription or a retainer model? This creates consistent revenue and simultaneously decreases your dependence on any one large or one-time sale or contract. So that has to do with five things you can do with customer dependence. I'd like to talk with you about five things you, you can do with addressing employee dependence. What if you got that one employee or a handful of employees, and they all know so much about your business that if they left, you would have no one else to take their place. Here are five things you can do if you are dependent on an employee. Number one, cross-train. Train employees to handle multiple roles or tasks. And this ensures that if one employee is absent or leaves, others can step in to recover their responsibilities and minimize disruption. Number two, if you don't have your processes documented, document your processes. It gets what becomes natural to an expert in their mind down on paper so that anybody could do it. What's the step-by-step -step process that your key employees already know? Ensure that all essential tasks and processes are well documented. This enables any employee to understand and execute a task, even if they weren't originally responsible for it. 
So even if you don't have cross-training in place, at least you would have the documented step-by-step so that you can quickly train someone else in the event of the loss of that key employee. Number three, consider succession planning. Identify potential leaders and key performers in your organization and prepare them for higher roles. This ensures a smooth transition if a senior employee leaves. You've got a deeper bench from which to choose. Number four, hire for redundancy in critical roles. So think about the roles that are vital to your business operations and consider hiring multiple people with similar skill sets. This will ensure that there's always someone who can handle crucial tasks. And number five, promote a collaborative culture. This takes time. Encouraging teamwork and knowledge sharing among employees doesn't happen overnight. Culture is not a speedboat that you can turn on a dime. It's more like an ocean liner. You just, if you don't have this culture now, build in a long-term view of beginning to turn that ship to a better culture. When employees are used to working together and sharing insight, it reduces the impact of any single employee's absence. It's more of a team as opposed to a collection of individuals. So we've talked about uh, five things you can do if you're dependent on any one customer. We've talked about five things you can do if you're dependent on any one employee. Let's talk about five things you can do if you're dependent on any one supplier. Number one is pretty obvious. Get more suppliers. Always have more than one supplier for critical products or services. When you do this, if one supplier faces challenges, you have others to fall back on. I had a client, I have a client who has a construction business And what we talked about there was we called it their preferred vendor network. And the idea here is in construction, there are certain trades like electric, and then you've got plumbing and the steel erection, just key elements in building a building. And the the idea is to build relationships with three plumbers, with three electricians, and three of each of the key trades in your business. That way, and and ideally, this preferred vendor network, if you had three different personalities of suppliers or vendors, then you could pick based on the customers, the way the customer does work and their perspective on life, you could pull different vendors from your preferred vendor network that would fit best with that cl- that customer. That's what we were doing with my client's construction company is to develop that preferred vendor network. It not only keeps you from a low Switzerland structure, but it also allows you to customize good relationships for a well-run project for your clients. Number two, source local. Now, while global suppliers might offer competitive prices, local suppliers can reduce the risk of supply chain disruptions because of geopolitical issues or shipping delays or global events. You're more likely to have success with a local supplier if something happens in the world 
than to be reliant on any one global supplier. Yeah, you may save money because they're global, because they can pass on the savings because of their volume. But what good is that savings if that global supplier can't supply? Number three, consider long-term contracts with favorable terms. Lock in favorable terms with multiple suppliers for extended periods, and that will safeguard against price hikes and ensure consistent supply. Now, however, be sure there's flexibility to adjust as market conditions change. So consider these contracts and, and kind of drag out the longer-term relationship and build in favorable terms. Number four, regularly review and vet your suppliers. Don't just assume that because they are your supplier that they're just going to operate continuously the way you expect them to operate. Things change. Leadership changes. So continuously model, monitor the performance, their financial health, and the reliability of each of your suppliers. When you're proactive like this, it helps you identify potential issues when they're small before they become significant problems. Number five, develop strategic partnerships. Instead of a traditional buyer-supplier relationship, consider forming strategic partnerships. You'll have a deeper collaboration that can involve joint ventures or shared investments or other arrangements that align interests and promote mutual growth. So those are five things you can do if you are dependent on any one supplier. As we bring this episode to a close, now, I want to remind you that the Switzerland structure is one of eight key drivers of your business value. You may be sitting there listening to this episode and you're thinking, there's no way I'm going to sell my company. I have no intention of selling. That's fine. But even if that is your scenario and you're not looking to sell, when you improve these eight drivers of business value, an interesting thing happens. Your company begins to thrive with less of your involvement. Now, as a 40 or 50-year-old business owner, there are things that are going to change as you move into the fourth quarter. And some of those changes might make you desire more freedom. Freedom to pursue a hobby. Freedom to get on the floor with your grandkids and play with them. Freedom to travel more. This stage of life change is inevitable. You are going to change. The question is, what are you going to do in your role in this business as it relates to these changes in, stage, in life stage? I'm working with an individual right now who is asking his, himself the question, should I stay or should I go? He's got a business about two and a half hours away from Columbus, Ohio, and yet his kids and grandkids are going to be in Columbus. So he's wrestling with this, should I stay or should I go? That freedom, the opportunity to make that option and call that option and do whatever you want has a greater possibility of taking place if the business is running very well. I would say if the business is, is firing on all eight cylinders, these eight business drivers, and I don't mean to be cute that there, I, 
I'm serious about this. This isn't just building your business so that you can get the greatest multiple on the sale. The residual benefit of making your company sellable at a high multiple is that you have more options and more freedom because your business will thrive without you. And that freedom, you can't put a price on. So that's the eight drivers of business value, one of which we've highlighted here. It's called the Switzerland structure. Ask yourself, how dependent am I on any one customer? How dependent am I on any one supplier or vendor? And how dependent am I on any one or few employees? That is what L.W. Nash wrestled with. Alcoa was a large customer of theirs. That is what Alcoa wrestled with. L.W. Nash was a large supplier or vendor in their world. If you don't do something about your significant customer, vendor, or employee, you are running a company on thin ice. And I hope that this episode has helped you to think about your business, not only your business and its sellability, but your own personal freedom. Thank you for listening today. I hope this has been helpful to you. If it has, and you want to share, share the podcast episode with a colleague, feel free to do that. Send me an email if you're interested in uh, talking a little bit more about this whole eight business drivers of value. My email is coach at Serving Strong, and I would love to have a conversation with you. This has been another episode of the Serve Strong, Finish Strong podcast. I take your time very seriously. Therefore, my pledge is to continue bringing you information and insight you need to be successful in your adventure as you finish strong. Be sure to check the show notes for the information related in this episode. Subscribe to be notified when new shows drop and leave a review if you're so inclined. I'll talk to you next time.